Greetings, this is The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we are exploring what Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living and surviving and even thriving in the times in which we're living today, times of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression. What do our sacred stories have to teach white folks in particular, white folks like me, white Christians, about our role in resistance and showing up in liberation? What wisdom is there for us as white Christians in these violent times of climate change and pandemic and rising authoritarianism in too many places and of racial capitalism? What beauty can we find in our resistance too? My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm grateful to throw in an episode for our series this past summer, Wrestling with Romans. If you were a loyal listener, throughout the summer, you might have noticed that in our jaunts through Paul's letter to the Romans, we missed the lectionary date from Romans 6, 12 through 23. That's because it was assigned to yours truly, and well, I wrestled with this text a little too long. A big, big thanks to Reverend Anne for her encouragement to keep wrestling and to post the episode anyway. Here's a little bit about me. I am a queer Christian, and I'm currently serving as the pastor of a United Church of Christ congregation in a small town in southeastern Pennsylvania. These were lands traditionally stewarded by the Lenni Lenape people. I love to swim in lakes and creeks wherever I can find them. I love to laugh. I love to sing. And I love to do what I can to do my part to fight the complete ludicrousness that is white Christian supremacy and capitalism in our lifetime. I am pleased to serve on the National Organizing Squad of Surge Faith. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed, like I said in the intro, for white Christians, white Christians who are turning towards other white Christians to talk about race and white supremacy. We believe that white Christians like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, and we believe we have a responsibility to tell a new story about Christianity for white Christian folks, because our lives, all of our lives, depend on it. And we do this work remembering that we are building up a new world, like the song goes. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice that was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. And we're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Whether this is your first time listening or whether we're a regular on your playlist, you are welcome here. The word is resistance. Grace. What do you hear when you hear the word grace? 
What do you feel when you hear the word grace? If you're driving, please don't close your eyes right now, but if you are in a space or place to do so, maybe sit down or lie down and close your eyes. Or if you're walking, slow down and just let that word roll over you. Let it pour over you. Grace. What does it feel like to just sit with that word for a minute? What does the word grace feel like in your body? Where do you feel it? Remember how earlier in this series, Reverend Ann Dunlap shared with us that our bodies are good and they can give us valuable wisdom and lessons. What wisdom does your body tell you about what grace is? People raised Christian have certain assumptions and connotations and experiences that we bring whenever we hear a word that figures prominently in Christian theology. Grace is one of those words. We take it for granted what grace might mean. Grace is a word that shows up in everyday language and vocabulary outside the church, too. Grace, time, grace, periods. Or say someone makes an error and someone else says, let's give them some grace. We've heard throughout this incredible series on Romans by my most esteemed fellow contributors that what is translated as grace in Romans is a huge deal for Paul. It's a huge deal for Paul in this letter to the Romans, which I like to call his letter to the Romans caucus. Think of it as like the Zoom breakout space for Roman converts into the movement. When Paul pipes in to say what he needs to say specifically to them. What about you? What did you first learn about grace? What has changed for you over time? I love that in her first episode in this series, Reverend Liz asked us to look underneath our dominant assumptions about Romans, our dominant interpretations, as if we are bringing a decoding filter to them. She asked us to envision one of those decoding filters that she says you'd hover over an inscrutable mess of squiggles and through a pink lens, it would reveal with clarity what was there all along. Let's take that decoding filter to the word grace into this text, Romans 6, 12 through 23. Romans 6, 12 through 23 comes midway through Paul's letter. I want to start with this meditation on grace because I believe that getting a grounded perspective on grace is key to unlocking what wisdom is here for us in Romans 6, because this is a really, really tough text. It means peeling back some of the layers that we might read into it and might assume about what grace means, and it's not actually there. In this passage, Paul is responding to a question presumably received from the Romans. It's one that he mentions earlier at the beginning of chapter 6 when he's talking about baptism. And the question is, well, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? 
The word in Greek for grace here, which shows up throughout Paul's letters and letters attributed to him, is charis. And the Greek in biblical term charis refers to something like goodwill, loving kindness, favor. It's also described as God's merciful grace. In Greek mythology, a charis is one of the charities or graces, the goddesses of charm, of beauty, of nature, of human creativity and fertility. In the larger Greco-Roman context outside of the Bible, this word indicated kindness and life. The word is used over 140 times in the New Testament in different places with different nuances. Sometimes it has meanings of blessings, favor, mercy, even beautiful words. One Bible word study tool defines hadis as that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. There's a really interesting definition of hadis, which means to be in favor of or for the pleasure of, and further, that which furnishes the reason to take action. In other words, to be actionable. An Indonesian New Testament translation from 1972 translates haris as essentially love gift. I don't know about you, but these are all really different ways of thinking about what grace means than I was taught. In our theological inheritance as Christians, we often get passed down an understanding of this word, grace, haris, in a way that's in conflict with Torah, law, and often as an inherently new thing, as if it's a new thing that comes through Jesus. Well, I hope as you've gleaned throughout this series, this is not what Paul is saying about God, and it's not biblical. All of what haris means for Paul, all of what grace means, is built on Jewish understandings and experiences of who God is and what God creates in the world. Loving kindness, mercy, blessing, favor. What Paul is saying is that through the opportunity to follow Christ, Gentiles like the Romans, even those who have benefited from and are complicit with the sins of empire, they, too, are invited into God's story of hope and justice beyond empire because of how powerful God's loving kindness is, because of how powerful God's mercy is and God's blessing is. In other words, because of how powerful God's grace is. That's just how amazing God is. So it is indeed more like love gift than forgiveness of sins. And that's how Paul responds to this question from the Romans, this question, why don't we just keep sinning if we're brought under God's law through grace? Paul responds saying, no, absolutely not. You can't just go justify sinning because you are welcomed into God's beloved family through grace. You're not freed to sin. It's that through Christ, in this love gift of becoming part of God's family, we become accountable to God's law of justice and right relationship. Even though Gentiles were not born ancestrally into that covenant as Jews, it is a gift, Paul says, in other words, 
to become accountable to justice. Remember that definition of hadis or grace as for the pleasure of that which provides the reason to take action? In other words of saying it, grace means the gift or the pleasure of being accountable and actionable, being able to take action. Wow. So what does this actually mean for us as white folks resisting white supremacy? Back in 2020, I helped organize a project for white artists to specifically make art that would embolden and empower white people to take action against racism. And one of the artists who has a store called Radical Imprints, her name is Nicole Manginelli. She's a white queer femme and a cis woman, a letterpress printer. She decided to make a piece of art that she called Heal the Harms. It was a fundraiser for the Catalyst Project, which supports the work of white folks showing up fiercely and strategically to dismantle white supremacy, and they're a close partner with Surge as well. Nicole's print has an image that has text on it, and it says, It is a gift to have the opportunity to heal the harms of our ancestors. It is also a gift to heal our own. It is a gift to have the opportunity to heal the harms of our ancestors. It is also a gift to heal our own. It is a gift to do the work of liberation. What grace means, I believe, for us as white Christians means exactly what I believe James Cohn says it does in the context of white folks in his 1997 book, God of the Oppressed. For white people living in the context of white racist oppression over black folks and others, grace in the context of our work means the gift of God's invitation to struggle against racism. The gift of God's invitation to struggle. That's what James Cohen says in God of the Oppressed. For Cohen, who is focused on black liberation, that means for white people being in solidarity with black people in their struggle for black liberation, being accountable to that struggle, serving that struggle. Grace means there's an invitation for white people to join the story of justice and right relationship, that God is working in the world, the movements of black liberation and movements led by other people who are oppressed in the context of our empires today. Grace means we are invited to take part in that struggle in spite of the ways that white folks are complicit with the structural sin of white supremacy. That invitation, that invitation to participate the invitation to solidarity is grace, God's free gift, 
God's love gift, God's blessing, God's favor, God's mercy, God's grace. The same grace, the same mercy that God has been extending for people across times and places and generations from the beginning of the world. In other words, it is God's nature to keep extending the invitation to struggle. In spite of all of the reasons we should be condemned or want to condemn ourselves for our complicity, for our participation in sin and white supremacy, our participation is still wanted and desired by God in the work to resist because of how much God loves us. I'm thinking of a shirt that a friend of mine says that says, God loves me and there's nothing I can do about it. God loves me and there's nothing I can do about it. In other words, God is not going to leave us out of this work for liberation. And that is good news. take a pause. What have you always thought grace means? What feels different now after hearing some of this etymology? After hearing this idea of grace as invitation to struggle by James Cone? After thinking about what grace might have meant from a Jewish perspective? To help us understand everything else about Romans 6, 12 through 23, I want to offer what I think is a grounded view of grace and everything that flows from it throughout the rest of the passage, and have a few observations to hold up. One, charis, grace, is not a new characteristic of God that is instigated through Jesus. It is a new way of saying something to new people about what God has always been doing. When I spoke with Reverend Anne about this text, and she referred me to Pamela Eisenbaum's work on the letter, Anne said, God created the whole world and called it good. That's what instigated grace. The second observation is that grace is grounded in Paul's Jewish tradition. It's associated with other biblical concepts throughout the Bible and known well to Jews, like loving kindness, mercy, and the bestowing of God's blessing and favor. Number three, Paul tells us in this part of the letter, that being in relationship to God's justice under grace is not a free pass to sin or to continue to participate in oppression. It requires something from us. But there is pleasure in this requirement. It's good to take action for the sake of right relationship, for liberation. The rest of this text goes on to have Paul talking about how we are to commit ourselves and our bodies for righteousness or sadaka 
instead of for sin. You can hear Reverend Anne talk about the Jewish notions of righteousness that Paul is using, one that is imbued with justice, in her first episode in the series. That's the first episode in this Wrestling with Romans series called Participants in the Promise, episode number 287 from June 11th this year. What we are seeing in this whole text is that God is committed to justice and keeps on extending the invitation to all people to be accountable to God's law of justice. Same law that Jesus said the most important in part is to love God with all your heart and all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore, God, Paul is saying, it's committed to us too, as white people, in the work of resisting racism. And in that commitment, in the grace of that reaching for us, God is calling us to commit. This is not a view of individual sin and individual action only. It's about the whole. It's about all of us. It's not about you being good or bad. It's about us, the whole, getting to goodness and participating in God's work of liberation here on earth. In other words, what kind of world do you want to live in, Paul is saying? One of oppression or one of liberation? One of sin or one of righteousness? One of being out of alignment or hamartias with God or one of right relationships, sataka and justice? He's saying, will you deploy your lives as instruments to get us there? Will you deploy your lives for the sake of justice? These are the stakes laid out to the Romans caucus, and they are the stakes that are laid out to us. I wrestled with this text for months. If you feel alone and being confused looking at Paul or in the letter to the Romans, I am with you. It only made sense to me after listening to the other episodes from the series, after talking with Everett Ann, after looking at Pamela Eisenbaum's work, and lots of encouragement, lots of encouragement and patience with me to keep trying to keep bringing up that decoding filter. And one of the biggest points of wrestle I had with Paul's work in this letter is his metaphor of being slaves of righteousness. This is one of those times where I'm going to say, Paul, you made a wrong choice there. He says he is speaking in human terms from an everyday example that the Romans will know. It should make us sad to know that this would have been such an everyday example for Romans. And we also should not be afraid to say, you know what, it's a terrible choice of an example. There are commentators who believe that it's a helpful metaphor because it communicates the gravity of sin, being enslaved to sin. But listen, I want to say to Paul, just don't do it. I cringe thinking about how the church or religious people can use the word slaves to righteousness or enslaved to God. Nope, let's not use it. Let's not even say slaves to justice either. 
I feel the same way about metaphors about God that use rape or abuse to talk about God's relationship with God's people. Just don't do it metaphorically. Because you're setting up people for some very toxic, oppressive relationships with God because of those rhetorical choices. So I believe that we can communicate about the structural, intensively horrific implications of systemic sin without using the metaphors that show up in verses 16 through 20. Otherwise, we can run the risk of adding to the oppression itself. We can know the wages of sin is death without using a death-dealing metaphor. That's why I didn't even mention these slavery metaphors here until the end of the podcast. I think there's some other words that can help us hear what Paul is trying to say in verses 16 through 20. He's inviting us to turn away from being committed to sin, from being in allegiance with sin, and turn to being committed to or in allegiance with righteousness and to God. Through Christ, we are turning away from being committed in allegiance with death, and instead are turning to being in allegiance with God's life-giving liberation. May it be so. As this series comes to an end, I hope you have been able to understand Paul in a new way, not for the sake of theological debate, but for the sake of giving you a sense of your place in the movement. I am so proud of how this series has been reclaiming this letter back from the empire one little bit at a time, as Reverend Liz said, taking that decoding filter. May we now take what we have found. May we now take its wisdom and feel its power and get to work, work that is grounded, grounded in grace. as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear feedback from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages, or fill out our survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you can check out our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at surge.org, where you can sign up for Surge Faith updates and find transcripts, for every episode, which includes references, resources, and action links. Speaking of action, please, please pay attention to what is happening in Atlanta with the criminalization of protesters that have been resisting Cop City who have received indictments under Georgia's RICO law. There is information about what Cop City is and proposed to be and why we should stop it why we need to support our friends and siblings in Atlanta who are doing so, on Surge's website at surge.org, Stop Cop City, there's a page called Organizing for Abolition and Climate Justice in Atlanta, and you can support from anywhere. And keep listening, friends. Keep sharing these words with each other in this work, in the word is resistance. Let's help each other out. This week, we'll hear Reverend Sharon Fenema for our 300th episode. 
We have each and every one of you to thank for that. We appreciate you so much. Remember, God loves you. God loves us. There's nothing we can do about that. And that's why God calls us to commit. God calls us to show up. God commits to us when we do. Amen. Build it.